0: Blessings of the solstice to you. You'll be hearing these after the solstice, I know, but I'm recording at the last minute again and sending my best wishes your way. Today we are taking a break from the deep dive into manifestation to go back to my favorite topic, which is star magic. And with it, the overview of the upcoming metro showers for this summer. If this is your first time with this podcast and you are not familiar with star magic, I have a whole episode on the subject in season one. But the gist is that it's about channeling the energy of these celestial bodies that are often forgotten, even though the sun is technically one of them. I'm big on star magic because I've always been fascinated by a starry sky. Hence the name of the podcast. Whether you believe in the divine or not, it's hard to argue that looking at the sky doesn't fill us with awe and wonder. It's something much bigger than ourselves. It can easily slide into nihilism, but I also feel like it can be very comforting because it takes a lot of pressure away from us and our lives. We are both insignificant in the grand scheme of things and a miracle. Because to me, it's absolutely insane that we even exist in a universe that has all that beauty and power. And of course, witchcraft is a way to get in touch with our own inner power, which then keeps us from losing sight of how special we are just for being alive. And that's why I'm passionate about bringing more star content to you. So I hope you enjoy these myths today and the showers themselves this summer. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. I'm Alexis, your new witchy reefer. I'm known as Asteria in witchy circles. I'm a photographer by day and star obsessed urban witch by night. Sometimes the opposite, often both at once. And I'm as star obsessed as Natsuki's Shinomiya in Otapri. Or just a warning, there would be loads of otaku references. I'm a Macapricorn Sun, Scorpio Moon, and Scorpio Rising, probably a Lyran Star Seed, a Tarot Lover, and all of my lipsticks have a spell on them. I started this podcast to share my passion and the empowerment and self love that cosmic witchcraft brought into my life. Come every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business, and magic that blend the practical with the woo. And bring you all-out history geeks solo episodes and amazing guests to explore the ways in which we can bring more enchantment into our lives. Ready to live life limitless? First, then we have let's the dive into today's The constellation is located in an area of the sky called the Sea or the Water, and its brightest star is the Delta Capricorni, also called the Rigelidi. According to Wikipedia, the sea or the water is an area of the sky in which many water-related and fuel-land-related constellations occur. This may be because the sun passed through this part of the sky during the rainy season. Most of these constellations are named by our old friend Ptolemy. Aquarius the water-bearer, Capricornus the sea goat, Cetus the whale, Delphinus the dolphin, Eridanus, the great river, Hydra the water serpent, Pisces the fishes, Pisces Austrinus the southern fish, which was now actually named by Ptolemy. Sometimes included in this are the ship Argo and Crater the water cup. And some other water still constellations are newer, so are not in this region. Anyway, if you're new to astrology, you may not be familiar with the fact that Capricorn is a seagoat. And therefore, we're wondering why it'd be in this area of the sky. And if so, you'll enjoy the next bit, the mythology of this site. It comes to us from Babylonia, where it was a symbol of the god Ea, or Enki in early sources, who is the Sumerian god of water, knowledge, crafts, and creation. In Greek mythology, it's also often recon- considered to represent Amalthea, the naïd nurse that nursed Zeus when his mother Rhea took him away for his protection when Cronus was eating his children. Amalthea has its own celestial body, which unsurprisingly lives by Jupiter, as it is one of its moons, but that's a modern addition. According to William Tillerall's Star Lore of All Ages, reports not, not only the Babylonian records I just mentioned, but also an explanation referring back to the 5th century Roman scholar Macrobius, that the Chaldeans named the constellation the Wild Goat due to how the sun looks like it begins a mountain climb when it arrives in the constellation of Capricorn, which is one of a few that came down to us with no changes in its makeup. According to him, the sea half of the goat represents the abundant waters of the winter rainy season, which is consistent with the story of Amalthea that ends with the horn of the goat becoming the cornucopia of prosperity. She considered by some a goat, although it's possible since it's Greek mythology that she showed herself as such, rather than being an actual goat. But either way, she was the nurse of the King of Olympus. Other mythological views of Capricornus consider it the Southern Gate of the Sun, or the Gate of the Gods. Through its stars, the souls of the departed would be passing on to the afterlife. Either way, if I wasn't scorpionic enough as it is, the nocturnal flying of Capricorn was seen as representing the sign climbing back up from, as Shakespeare puts it, the blind cave of eternal light. After all, the winter solstice is the point of the year where the sun is in Capricorn and lives in the northern hemisphere because it's The winter solstice today is for the southern. Although nowadays it's more symbolic than anything since the actual seasons shifted, and if you use side real astrology, the season will not be the same as tropical. I like the history though, so I'm happy to keep the symbolism even if the actual science isn't a match anymore. But the solstice marks the time when winter begins to end. And life is coming back out from the underworld where it laid to rest since the autumn equinox. Even though in the calendar we say that that's the start of winter, like astronomically, that's not the case. The light is coming back when it is the shortest day of the year. Anyway, over in Rome, the constellation was considered under the special protection of Vesta and the seagot appears on coins from the time, since it was believed to have been auspicious for the birth of Augustus, who was born on September 23rd, which is, in fact, the peak time for seeing Capricornus in the northern hemisphere. Fun fact, that's how Neptune was discovered in 1846, I mean the same date. The views around the constellation and its role in prosperity are common across cultures. In Peru, we find a festival celebrating the time where the sun crosses Capricornos as, of course, it's the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere, and there too we find a gold-light figure. Anyway, the cornucopia is apparently a masonic emblem, but there is a further tidbit of symbolism attached to Capricorn and its role in our fortunes coming to us from the Arabic names for the stars. One of them, Dabi, is reported that means the lucky one of the slaughterers, in reference to the sacrifices celebrated at the time of the sun rising from Capricorn. Another one, Nashira, the fortunate one or bringer of good tidings. I'm not the kind of annoying ex Christian who goes Christian's old pagan holidays, but I think the fact Christmas is also a holiday in Capricorn season really shows us how culturally widespread it is to see Capricorn as a lucky and prosperous sign. The dates for your diary. The Alpha Capricornings will start appearing from July the 3rd and will continue until the 15th of August. number of meteors is highest in the early hours of Sunday the 30th of July. Unfortunately, It'll be around the full moon, so the conditions for seeing the meteors aren't ideal. And the Alpha Capricornians are only five per hour, so that's not quite as easy, as easy as others to see some of them. Although they look like fireballs, so they are quite impressive when you do. If you Google it, there's some articles from when they were spotted in Madrid, and the photos are great, so you can see what I mean. I'm mentioning this because, from a magic point of view, these showers are actually very Capricorn energy. Because Capricorn energy is a discerning energy. We don't attempt to climb five mountains at once. We set on one path and we made a tour, but we are on not changing the peak, we are detouring on that one mountain. We just shift and pivot to adjust the way to be the best route to the top. And we are single mindedly determined to achieve what we set out to achieve. And that can be our downfall because the shadow of this energy is the inability to let go. We attach stories about our own worth uh, to this ability to reach the peak and plant our flag. And therefore, it's hard for us to just pivot completely and say, well, you know what, I'm not going to climb Everest. I'm just going to go to something else. So unlike other meteor showers where the, the sky is full of sparks like a star rain, the showers are more like a celestial game of darts. You'll see one here, one there, but they aren't thin and flimsy threads of light. They are big, powerful balls of fire. So that's something I invite you to sit with if you're planning to do magic with this energy. But even just to reflect on how the same thing appears so different in different contexts. At the end of the day, meteor showers are the debris of broken comets there, who be too close to the sun and then explode, which I can Actually, I can't remember if I ever actually mentioned last season. I always assume this is like primary school level knowledge and then people think I'm a dick, flaunts how clever she is all the time, because I take for granted that everyone else knows just as much as I do. Anyway, I think the idea of comets exploding and giving us something beautiful in there there is somewhat poetic and powerful too, so that's another angle you can use to approach star magic. Next, we have the Delta Aquarius. In season two, we already talked a little about the law related to the Aquarius as we had the Eta Aquarius shower. At its peak, the Delta Aquarius can produce 25 meteors per hour. However, they usually faint meteors without long trails and they rarely turn into fireballs. The main difference between the Eta and the Delta Aquarius, aside from the time of the year, is that we don't know which comet they are associated with. They are also influenced by Jupiter. And I mean literally in in astronomy. It's a finding of the Harvard Major Project in the 50s. But we're witches, so we can take this magically and bring in the themes of our sky daddy planet into how we look at the shower. For a change, the Southern Hemisphere is the one that has the best chance at seeing the shower. She's happening from the 12th of July until the 23rd of August, peaking around the 30th of July like the previous one. Although the recommended viewing time is 2 to 3.30 a.m. By the way, I will link the website in the show notes. This info is coming from an amateur astronomer's project, the UK Meteor Network. Much gratitude to Lady Bailey for the articles and the rest of the team for their work, making a random witch's life easier. From a mythological point of view, like the other Aquariids, there is an awful lot. The shower coincides with the space occupied by the third brightest star in the constellation of Aquarius, which is predictable the Delta Aquarius or Scott from its arabic name. Apparently it derives from the arabic word for Shin, the body part, not the amnesia of interest. In Chinese mythology this star is one of those called the palace guards, as the 45 stars making up the constellation of Aquarius in the Greek system represent the ancient imperial guards. They have four constellations representing four quarters of the sky, and the palace guards are part of the black Tortoise or Black Warrior, Dark Warrior, or Mysterious Warrior in a more literal translation of the original Chinese name, of the North. Uh, so Black Tortoise of the North. The association with the animal comes from the symbol for it rather than the name, which corresponds to the god Tzuanwu, and I apologize, I probably butchered that, who was one of the higher-ranking deities in Taoism. It's revealed as a powerful god able to control the elements and capable of great magic. I will not go down a Chinese alchemy rabbit hole. Not today anyway, because there's more to talk about with the major showers for the summer. But there's a lot of cool stuff if you're interested in perspective outside of Europe, and I'm itching to go over to Asia to study them from the people that perspective belongs to. Universe, I'm using my voice to state my desire, now do your thing. Our final meteor shower for the summer is the Perseids. I don't know if it's a cultural Italian thing or if it's known elsewhere too, but this is the meteor shower that peaks around the night of St. Lawrence on August 10th. She's one of the examples of Catholicism overlapping folk magic because it's a thing to go meteor sighting in order to make a wish on a shooting star. She's a busy form of star magic, then obviously you do your rituals and spells as simple or as elaborate as you'd like. The shower is probably the biggest all year, coming from the comet Swiss Tuttle, which is also influenced by Jupiter in its orbit, and it's huge to start with. No need for the planets of expansion to expand it. At its peak, the Perseids can produce an amazing one hundred and fifty meters per hour, that's one every twenty to thirty seconds. And they're usually bright with long trails with a good chance of spotting a fireball. The reason for the night of St. Lawrence tradition has to do with the meteors being first posted in ancient Roman times on the night of the saints martyrdom. It was not the first posting in history, however, as they were seen in China in 36 Common Era. As 36 Common Era? I don't even know what I'm saying. 36 Common Era. I got confused. I'm sorry. So, in 158 CE, Emperor Valerian declared that bishops and priests should be persecuted until dead, which brings us to how Lawrence was burned alive. There are two versions of the story in the various lives of the saints. In one, the shooting star represents the tears shed by the saint during his martyrdom. In the other, they symbolize the burning coals. And from ancient times, stars have been seen as a symbol of divine manifestation, so they have been linked to the concept of wishes coming through across more than one culture. And it's unsurprising that the spread of Catholic Christianity will link it to the intercession of a saint. That's just how things are. However, aside from the power of the date itself, which is just days after the peak of the Lion's Gate portal, which is at that point still open, the Perseids have a powerful mythology too. I'll look at the portal in another episode, so for now let's circle back to these meteors. In the mythology, Perseus is one of the great heroes. One of the sons of Zeus with a mortal is the slayer of the Gorgon Medusa, and as the rescuer of the Ethiopian princess Andromeda, who gives the name to a neighbouring constellation. He was generally beloved by the gods, who gave him multiple aids in his quests, which is significant when we think of his myth in the light of a conflict between man and beast, with a human sacrifice at stake and the eventual triumph of man. A step start back in case you are unfamiliar with the myth itself. Andromeda's mother was bragging that her daughter was more beautiful than a nymph, which angered Poseidon, the god of the sea, who unleashed a beast to ravage the cost, cost of a um, kingdom in retaliation. Andromeda's father petitions Zeus, who tells him that only the sacrifice of Andromeda will placate his brother, and so the young maiden is tied to a rock, ready to be taken to, by the monster. Luckily for her, Perseus is passing by, Caesar falls in love at first sight and kills the monster, which gives the name to another neighbouring constellation, Cetus, which is one of the most interesting ones from an astronomical perspective, or I think so anyway. According to Orocot, the Arabs call the constellation of uh, Perseus the bearer of the demon's head. which is represented by the star Beta Perse, known generally as Zalgolt. Perseus has also been called the Rescuer and and the Destroyer. Someone named Dr. Sais, who has not actually been explained who it is in the book, regards the figure as symbolising the Redeemer of Mankind. And others in the Christian tradition have claimed that Perseus represents David with the head of Goliath and even the Apostle Paul with his sword and book. In astrology, you might remember from season 2, Argo was considered the most unfortunate and dangerous stars in the heaven, and that was back in the episode on Fit Stars. Among the Hebrews, apparently, Argo was said to represent Lilith, which is an interesting point since in modern astrology, Lilith is calculated at the farthest point of the moon's elliptical orbit. The star has also been called the Medusa Socorgon's head, Satan's head, the Spectre's head, double-I, and pad up courses in Chinese, although that's a mistake on Orkut's part, as referencing a source is misattributing the name of Pi, per se, to Algo, whose Chinese name actually means mausoleum. Not a huge difference, it's still a very gothic star, but still, I was able to double-check the sources this time. Star lore has a few more bits about this constellation and its relationship to the Milky Way, that I'm not going to talk about because i like to focus for a moment on the themes we already have here. Namely, the way we relate to nature and creatures other than humans, and the way men relate to women. Note this podcast has 2% higher female audience than the average, so my apology to the gents and friends beyond the binary that are listening, but we are once again going feminist here. At the core of witchcraft, there is the idea of inner power. The myth of Perseus, even in its most positive interpretation in which Andromeda sacrifices herself, is a myth where a man rescues a woman. and may not look like a great energy to walk with, but I think the fact that it is such a disempowering scenario is precisely why we must sit with this story and face the conditioning of having been born in a culture that was itself born of the culture where this myth originated, and then flip it on its head. And become the heroines of our own story may whatever we wish upon these falling stars be a building block of the age of the divine feminine now the forecast for the week ahead we are now in cancer season the moon is in leo and will be waxing all the way to scorpio by the time of the next episode and venus is in leo too preparing to station retrograde in a month's time. If you are looking to work with this energy, do check out all the content that Dana is putting out on the self-help which Instagram page and on her podcast. And I'm not sure if her Karen free workshop series has replays and you can still join, because I mentioning this off the top of my head and she has no idea about it. Anyway, we started this morning with Karen being aspected by Mercury in a set style, So I'm really feeling the whole need to take care of ourselves, like we're the king or queen of our lives, because tomorrow on the 23rd at 5.52 a.m. CET, Carol will be in a trine with Mars too. It's not a bad thing if the things you experienced in the past motivate you in the present, but A, beware of proving energy and B, beware of taking it too far and not taking care of yourself because you are so caught up in doing all the things. Next the significant placement that we have is on the twenty sixth, Mercury square in Neptune at thirty five minutes past midnight CET. This is an energy that people interpret in different ways that have little in common with each other. But for me, it's about how to balance swords and cups. Not that I'm good at it, mind. But people have this tendency to see Neptune as being idealistic as a bad thing. We didn't get all the comforts and technology we have from people who believed it is what it is and did nothing about improving stuff. We need idealism to push us forward. A few hours later, at 11.52am, Mars will be squaring Uranus, so still keeping up with these themes of progress for the collective. The action-driven energy of Mars meets with Uranus' high-minded rebellion can make us more creative and able to think outside the box and break rules to make things happen. It's a good day to set time aside for overcoming any creative blocks if you have projects that have stalled. On the 27th we have the biggest transit of the week with Mercury changing signs and going into Cancer at 2.24am. Mercury in Cancer is an interesting energy because it goes back to the idea of balancing swords and cups. It demands that the mind and the heart be aligned. We don't have a retrograding cancer this year, but I feel like my life is forcing one on me personally anyway. If you have a tendency to live from the head or think that you live from the head when you really, you just have a negative emotional response to things, cannot allow yourself to see a positive view of life as a reasonable response. This is a good time for you to walk on your mindset. Likewise, People who swing the other way can also benefit from reflecting on the synergy between these two seemingly incongruous approaches to life. Intuition needs to be grounded. It doesn't mean that intuition needs to be limited or dismissed. We are wired to communicate with ourselves with the entirety of our bodies, not just thoughts. Sometimes things don't make sense now, not because they are too out there, but because we don't have the full picture yet. You don't need to believe in a higher power to believe that you may be guided towards something. Our brains work with association and images, and maybe you're just not consciously aware of what the steps you've been nudged towards in making means to you. Which brings me to our card for the week, which is death reversed. I mentioned before that every reversal in different ways depending on the context. In this case, I think it falls under both inwards energy and blocked energy. Are there places where we are resisting change? Do we have emotions to release or mindsets to shift because they don't serve us? Pay attention especially to what's inherited from your family and ancestral culture, since that's a cancer thing. This is a major arcana, so you may be working with very big themes. And if you're working with small ones, that's okay, it still applies. It's still about our ability to transform and change and grow into different versions of ourselves. It's also possible that you don't realize just how much change has already happened because you didn't stop and take stock of what's going on inside. So that's another angle that may resonate with you. That's all that's coming to me right now. And I have a couple more tasks I want to get through before I waste an evening trying to read AI texts from a chitty boy in Japanese at one word per minute instead of getting run to a clean amnesia, which is what I actually planned. Anyway, next week we'll be back for more about manifestation and what I think the industry should be saying but isn't. Also, a heads up, I originally intended to finish the season and take my holidays in, but I may break after episode 5 and then come back. I mentioned before that one lesson I'm trying to learn is that... Uh, about what it really means to be reliable without spreading myself to sin and ignoring my own needs so as to not disappoint others, who would probably be understanding if I was my needs. So I'll be playing it by ear in the coming days, and as a dutiful manifester, I will inform you of what's going on. Until next time, keep living in wonder. Thank you for listening to the Starry Sky and Witchy Sings podcast. A huge thank you to Jenna Sword at Jenna S-O-A-R-D on Instagram for the cover art and Papa Planet for the music. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be notified when a new one comes out, please subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you really love it, leave a five-star rating and review, which will help me be found by more people who'll enjoy it too. Also, feel free to share it on social media and with anyone you think should give it a shot. You can send your questions and comments to my email, starryskypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at starryskypodcast. And you can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter at witchymusings.substack.com, where I share reflections and tips about the astrological seasons. Until next time.